1: Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Inside the Studio on
3: iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtog, but enough about me. Apologies for the COVID-related silence last week, but we are back and we're so excited to share with you our latest conversation. My guest today is a singer, songwriter, and mental health activist. She used music as a form of self-therapy to transcend the difficult circumstances of her upbringing in Alaska. Ultimately, the same songs that brought solace to her touched millions. Her 1995 album Pieces of You has become one of the best-selling debuts of all time, earning her praise from the likes of Bob Dylan and Neil Young. A fierce independent spirit, her work has spanned genres and mediums. This creative wanderlust not to mention her lust for life, is apparent in the title of her latest record, Free Wheelin' Woman. Her first collection of original material in seven years, it's a rich and diverse musical sampling that draws elements of pop and Muscle Shoals R&B into a familiar folk sound. Altogether, the album is a portrait of an artist who's as prolific and singular as ever, brimming with optimism and passion. She's about to kick off her summer tour in early June, when she can bring you this positivity in person. But hopefully you'll get a little of that positive energy coming through your speakers right now as you listen in. I'm so
1: happy to welcome Jewel.
3: You're an incredibly prolific writer and you have this staggering cache of, of unheard songs. I think I've read upwards of a thousand. But for this album, you said you started from scratch and wrote songs specifically for this record. What led you to take that approach this time around?
4: I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm not <laughs> sure what the heck did it. Um, <laughs> it's like I have songs sitting there, perfectly good songs. <laughs> and, no, there was a specific reason. I really wanted this this album to be who and what I am now. Um, you know, songs are like little time capsules, and hmm. it, it's kind of a complex little narrative. But I'll try and say it really simply. When when I was 18 and I got discovered, my goal was to be... <laughs> it's ambitious. I know it's a little laughable, but my goal was to be one of the best singer-songwriters of all time. I wanted to push myself to be a great writer. And I knew that that was going to be really hard for me as a woman. Um, well, A, it's just a hard goal, period. Um, but when I looked at the field of like, who do I look up to who has done this as a woman... It's kind of hard. You know, you have luminaries like Joni Mitchell and and Rikini Jones and Carol King, and, you know, the list goes on. We're not shy on talent in the female singer-songwriter category, but as the women age, they never, in my opinion, got to enjoy the same ticket sales and prestige that their male counterparts had, like Bob Dylan and Neil Young. And that's troubling, right? Because I was a girl wanting to try and pull off something where I hadn't seen a lot of women get a chance to pull it off. And there were women in the pop side, you know, that had become icons, but that was Madonna and Cher. And that's just not who I am. Um, I wanted to do it as a singer-songwriter. So it meant navigating and trying to build my career in a way that I hoped would foster my writing. You know, where I kept uh, writing, I kept doing things that were for me inventive that pushed myself whether they were or weren't in sync with where culture was to take risks musically you know that has to be part of your plan but you, I still have to, had to face this like well what do women in their middle age do in that job it's not cute you know like you see most women in their middle age still trying to dress like they're young and be super cute and hopefully have a really catchy song and that just seems kind of I don't know abysmal to me in a way If it's who you authentically are, that's awesome. But it just doesn't happen to be how I want to do it. So me doing this record this way for me was two things. One, saying I want to push myself to write in a way I've never written before. I wanted to find a new gear and a new muscle that felt fresh, that felt uh, like I wasn't just covering ground I've covered before, uh, that pushed me vocally in a way I've never been pushed before that hopefully was, you know, well-crafted, um, but that wasn't contrived and reactionary. And it gets really hard in your middle age. Like, I definitely see why why David Bowie and so many other artists did a lot of drugs at this phase in their career <laughs> to get, like, a new sound, because it's hard to get rid of the old versions of yourself and to get rid of the stuff like, a, you know, a chorus that comes 30 seconds into a song or... A song should be three minutes. Like, oh, that just makes garbage music. Um, and you have to figure out how to get old versions of yourself and bad information out of your head and come from a really new, authentic place. And that's work. It was a lot of work to write the songs on this album, um, to push myself. I think I wrote 200 songs to get the 12 wow. that I like. Um, and it was nuts. It was a nutty process. Drugs would have been easier. Like, <laughs> the silver was hard. <laughs> Um, but I'm really proud of the result. So that was one aspect of wanting to do it. The other aspect is I wanted this to embody who I was as a 47 year old female. I wanted it to show how proud I am because I am, I'm proud. I wanted this album to be empowering. Um, the decisions that I've made, like, you know, quitting after spirit, you know, I quit for two years because I couldn't psychologically adjust to the level of fame I got. There was nobody celebrating that at the time. You know, nobody was like, "Oh, good for her. She's doing this for her mental health." Mental health wasn't a word, and everybody was like, "Oh, she's already washed up." Like it was a really cruel narrative. Of and for me to have the courage to do it anyway, and to like tell my label and tell my managers, like, "Nope, I am gonna have a complete breakdown if I don't figure out how to handle the level of fame I've gotten." I made really bold decisions in my whole career that weren't always understood and so I'm just proud, you know, I wanted this record to, yeah, I don't know, serve as a sort of, I don't know, a glimpse into what it's like to be a female singer songwriter, um, what it's like to be middle-aged, and to say, I I really believe I'm writing at the height of my power, I really believe I'm singing at the height of my power, um, and I feel like we, we think we see talent diminish with time, and you have to fight for that to not be the case, and that's, you know, a thought that I've been aggressive with, with myself. So
3: long answer. More experiences, more insight. I mean, it makes sense that you'd be be at the peak of your powers. I'm still hung up on the, the 200 songs. That is incredible to me. What was the calling process like for, for choosing the songs for this record? Were you, did you pick the ones that you felt like reflected who you are in this moment, the best, or just purely ones that were your favorite for reasons like you liked the melody or something like that?
4: I found I was writing very proficiently, but I think I was writing pretty safe. Mm. In all honesty, I think that I never wrote the same since everything went down with my mom. I think that there was some kind of like psychological governor, I guess you could say. And it was hard for me to access a really, really deep, raw place with my writing. And I had to tackle that. And I'd never realized it. I've written many records since then, by the way. Picking Up the Pieces is actually probably the favorite album I've ever recorded. It's a lot of old songs. Um, My new stuff just wasn't as, I don't know, crisp or raw or new. You know, it was like, ooh, this kind of sounds like something I've already written. And I knew it. You know, nobody else might know it, but I could tell, I could hear it in the writing. And so I just didn't let myself settle until I broke through that. And that was a real intense process. Also, you know, writing anything in the same genre is hard. You know, if you sit down to Mm. write, you may not write a good song. Probably won't, right? I look at it like mining for gold. You just, some days you get dirt, you know, and some days you (laughs) get a diamond. You don't have control over it. So you have to put hours in, you know, to find that magical diamond. Um, Unless you're contrived, right? If I was just trying to write a pop hit, that would kind of be different. Um, But when you're trying to find something just fresh or new, it's just sort of, it's a collaboration with the unknown. You know, you, you can't control that process. Um, and then getting it in the same genre. So a good song that happens to kind of be of a theme because I, when I sit down, I can't control the style. It sometimes comes out country. It sometimes comes out folk. It sometimes comes out rock. I, I don't always, I just don't have control over that. And so getting things that felt like they were good and new and of a piece. You know, where they made sense together uh, just really took time. And it's funny, it wasn't until I, I haven't listened to the album since I made it, which was two years ago. Um, but I heard it the other day and I was like, oh, wow. It didn't dawn on me. This is the first album where I finally got all my styles on one record. I thought I was really making an album that felt like of a piece, and hopefully it does. But I didn't realize also like there's straight up folk music and then there's country stuff and then there's real pop stuff. Um, and then introducing, you know, and paying homage to an influence I've never had a chance to do before, which is soul, uh, and those, the soul style of writing, like the Withers, as well as the great singers.
3: Oh, I was gonna say I love the diversity of the arrangements on this. It's so compelling to me. I mean, something like grateful is something right out of muscle shoals, and you've got like the Memphis Stax horns from Love Winds. And it's and then you've got something stripped back and so delicate, like almost. I mean, I love how just the styles and the arrangements are so diverse. And and you you hear that in your head as you're writing these songs? You hear the kind of the 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 vague style that it would take as you're writing it.
4: Yeah, you feel the mood for sure. Um, mm. Like I knew when I was writing almost that, you know, it's like having lace that would dissolve in water. Like that song is so delicate, but so uh, sharp at the same time that it just can't handle production. i just know that it's just going to be what it is guitar and a voice. Um, whereas when I was writing love winds, like all of a sudden I was like, what is this? This is like, I c- and Tina Turner era. Like, you know, you start feeling that flavor sort of as you're writing it.
1: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
3: you mentioned listening to the album back for the first time in in two years since you've made it. Do you ever learn anything from about yourself from listening to your songs? I mean, I overuse this analogy, but almost like a like a good dream reading. Do you ever hear a song back that you wrote and actually get new perspective on on what's going on inside of you? Mm,
4: not particularly um That's more poetry for me. When I look back and read my poetry, poetry has been the thing I've written consistently, more consistently than any other thing in my life. I don't publish it ever, but I have boatloads of it swimming around. Um, And if I go back and read my poetry, I'm like, wow, I saw the writing on the wall and I didn't even know I saw it. Uh, It definitely has much more of like a tea leaf thing of like, holy smokes. But I don't know, I don't experience my songwriting that way particularly.
3: Oh, that's so interesting. I I love, I mean, when speaking to people who are blessed with the ability to write music, uh, I, I'm just so interested to hear what compels them to do it in the first place. And for you, it sounds like this came from a, it fulfilled a very specific purpose early on, which was kind of as an exercise in mindfulness. And I wanted to ask you more about that because that's so interesting to me.
4: When I was eight, my my parents got divorced. My mom left us and my dad took over raising us <clears throat> and he became... He started drinking. He was trauma triggering, but you know the words trauma trigger were not a well known thing at the time. He started drinking to try to mitigate that, and it went pretty predictably. Um, and so he became abusive. Uh, we were singing in bars, so I was in a lot of pain, is the bottom line. And I was watching a lot of people in pain because I was singing in bars. And when you sing in bars, you know five hour sets, you're kind of seeing the regulars. You're not seeing the person who comes in you know, casually you're seeing people medicate. And I didn't know those words at the time, but I could tell people we were in pain. I recognized that because I, re- I was in it and I noticed I was always just an observant person. I always liked watching people and I felt like, wow, I have this front seat row to people being just like living their lives so out loud because they're inebriated, right. Or high and they have no filter. Um, and so I watched people drinking to handle pain. I watched people doing drugs. I watched people having sex, not literally, but you know these relationships that were volatile and would play out. And I realized like, oh my gosh, nobody outruns pain, but we're not taught what to do with it. And I wanted to try and handle my pain as it happened because like, I see in pictures. And so I, I just saw these people had some kind of pain and then they covered that pain up with a lot of bad choices. And it led to more pain. And then it was suddenly like this mountain that they never could face.
0: And it would have been
4: better if they could just found the skill or the courage to just face the original pain. You can't outrun pain was my takeaway. And so I tried to like assess like, what did I have that helped me with pain and writing helped. Um, I was journaling at a really young age. I was trying to write poetry at a young age and I felt better. I felt noticeably better when I wrote. And so I just sort of turned to that as my coping mechanism, I guess, um, never thinking it would be a job. You know, it was just a way of seeing patterns and of seeing things about myself that I didn't know I saw, of seeing things about my dad, for instance, that I didn't know I saw. And it helped me. It kind of felt like a ladder up and out of my pain or myself or my situation. And little did I know how literal that would be. It would, it would be a literal ladder out.
3: I mean you you've should mention this earlier. I'm a huge admirer of your mental health advocacy work you do on for the Inspiring Children Foundation and the wellness practices that you have on jewelneverbroken.com. Everyone should check it out, especially after the last two years we've had. I've found so many of the, the um, practices that you've shared so helpful personally. And you've mentioned uh, the notion of using anxiety as an ally. And as an anxious person myself, I found this to be a very hopeful sentiment. Um, and I think, as you mentioned, a lot of us are trying to eliminate anxiety. Or pain from our lives, which is kind of a fool's errand. Um, and you use writing. I mean, what are some other ways that, that you know, you you suggest um, turning this anxiety into something productive for people?
4: Um, I guess I'd just start by saying, you know, mindfulness for me, I would just give a definition that means being consciously present. That's it. You know, this is a word we hear all the time, and it's kind of a word we don't really know what it means. So mindfulness is being consciously present. It doesn't mean that your life will change instantly. It just means you'll be consciously present, which puts you in a position to change your life. I liken it to a car. If your body was a car, your brain isn't the driver. It's like a steering wheel. But it can go on autopilot, a neurological autopilot, if you're not consciously present to drive the car. So being consciously present is like getting off of autopilot and getting in neutral. Being in neutral won't change your life, but it gets you in a position to get in a new gear. What actually will change your life is what I call mindfulness in motion is something practicable. Now that you're consciously present, what are you going to do with that? Um, So I notice I'm angry. I stop. I take a breath. I get consciously present. I'm now observing. Okay, I'm I'm angry. Now what do I want to do? That is that gap where you stop and insert a new tool instead of, you know, just reacting off of an old tool, right? Yelling. You stop and you breathe. Okay, okay, I really want to yell, but I'm not going to. I'm actually going to go write or call my therapist or call a friend, whatever the new thing is. That changes your life. That actually starts to starve old neural networks and help you build new ones. Um, And for some reason, I don't know why, but when I was homeless, I... I started developing songs and I started developing these tools for myself just to get results, right? To make myself stop stealing, to help myself with panic attacks. And I would tackle it one pain point at a time, right? I would tackle stealing and that's all I would focus on or I would tackle my panic attacks and that's what I would focus on. And So those skills are what I've been able to share and create curriculum um, out of um, without therapy. Not that I'm, I'm against therapy, it's just that that everybody has access. And so what about those people, you know, what about kids that don't have support systems or therapists or God forbid, what if your therapy just isn't getting you the change you want? Does that mean you're unlucky? You know, can you still be happy? Um, And so that's what's really been driving me. Yeah. These last several years, one of those concepts is anxiety as an ally. Um, For me, when I figured this out, it just really changed everything. Nothing can change in isolation, right? Imagine it just like chemicals or chemistry, like can we have an atom it will stay itself unless it's introduced to something new like fire or something. Now it's chemical composition can begin to change. It happens in relationships. So we try to disassociate from an aspect of our own personality. We cannot expect it to change. We can only expect it to maybe to not notice it, to do something louder, right? That's why we get high risk behaviors is to drown out the pain of our anxiety, let's say. but. You actually have to invite it closer because your anxiety is your body's way of saying you just consumed something that doesn't agree with you. It's a thought, a feeling, or an action or an interaction. So I started to get excited every time I was anxious and go, okay. And I'd stop and I go, what was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? And it was hard, right, to identify the thought that gave me that anxiety because sometimes we think things without noticing we think them and our whole body triggers, you know? Um, But if you stay really faithful to that and you get curious and invite your anxiety closer, and then more importantly, if you can abstain from it, you're going to make a huge change in your life. You know, if you can say, all right, I'm no longer going to allow myself to beat myself up because every time I say X to myself, I feel crappy. I'm going to insert a different thought. And you have to be willful about it, but it really does change.
3: I mean, just getting to the place of actually being uh, excited to experience your anxiety because you know that's your body trying to tell you something. I mean, that's got to be a tough place to get to, I imagine, too, because that that takes a certain amount of of courage because it's uncomfortable. Anxiety is painful.
4: Yeah. And so, you know, dysfunction is painful. Healing is painful. It's hard. Healing is hard work. But at least there's a better possible outcome not a guarantee, but at least there is light at the end of that tunnel. Whereas I already know me running from my anxiety doesn't work, you know, so that's a known outcome. And so you do kind of have to be a little bit logical, um, which is kind of funny in a mindfulness practice, but you kind of have to go, okay, I've tried a thing that doesn't work and makes me sick. Am I willing to try something new? Am I willing to look at it like an experiment and take notes and see if there's a difference? And that's where it kind of gets fun is you should see a difference. It's not like, oh, I think I, I think I feel better. It's like, holy smokes, I was able to stop my panic attack. You know, you start to see real changes and that begins to be rewarding. Like working out, you know, when you start working out, it sucks. But you start like <laughs> developing an app and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm into it.
3: I see the payoff.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> was there a, a, any kind of a a light bulb moment or a moment for you where songwriting went from being sort of an exercise in mindfulness and something that was more for you to being something that gave you a career direction, was something that you kind of wanted to let other people into?
4: Let's see. I mean, I was singing with my dad in bars, and that was like a blue-collar job, five-hour sets of cover songs. He wrote too. We would sing some of his. Um, never thought I would be like a professional musician. I ended up homeless because I wouldn't have sex with a boss and he wouldn't give me my paycheck. So I started living in my car thinking I would get a new job, but I didn't, uh, I had bad kidneys and my car got stolen and it was just like a shit show. Um, and I started writing songs. I was writing prior to this. Um, but I was trying to stop stealing. And so I was trying to replace a behavior of stealing with a different behavior, which was writing. And I was a really prolific thief. I became a really prolific writer (laughs) again, not thinking it would, uh, lead to a career. Um, I don't know. I was just trying to figure out how to quit stealing. And I loved writing, you know, it was really fun for me. I just, I guess I thought careers in music were for other people. I don't know. Um, it wasn't until record labels started coming to see me when I was, homeless still did I was like holy smokes like this could be a career like and I it's something I talk to my kids uh, in my foundation a lot and a lot of my talks is every time you invest in your character it seems bleak right like me turning my boss down refusing to have sex with him had a disastrous consequence like I had to live in my car and then my car got stolen I ended up homeless that's a really bad outcome but it was investing in my character right I I refused to be leveraged. And I was willing to say, fine, I'll be in a really uncomfortable position so that I'm not leveraged. That, that investment I made in my character paid off dividends on the character stock market or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it works, but it's magic. And every time I've seen anybody do it, refuse to compromise their soul, it pays dividends in unexpected ways. You know, if I had kept that job, it was kept, it kept me very busy, right. Barely scraping by. I wouldn't have had time to really write. I, you know, it's crazy that it ended up leading me to music because I don't think it, I would have ended up there. Maybe I would have. Um, but it was an an unexpected side effect of investing in my humanity, in my character. um, And just not believing that lie, you know, a million times in my career, people have been like, well, you're never going to be famous if you don't X, Y, Z. Well, bullshit, you know, (laughs) just keep insisting. And that's the thing about me too, I feel like doesn't really get recognized is you can walk, you can tell people to F off, you know, and it, it works out. It will work out. We just don't see a lot of examples in it in our society. I
3: think maybe on some level, people are more free than they give themselves credit for. And you You can always have a
4: choice. Yeah. And that's the really freeing thing is, you know, I figured out how to be happy when I was homeless with nothing, you know, and when I stopped thinking somebody else owed me, you know, when I stopped thinking somebody else would come save me and I started going, Hmm, maybe I owe myself. Like, what am I capable of? My happiness is my own. And if I'm unhappy, I have to be accountable to that. And there was a lot of, you know, things I could make excuses about. I was having a terrible life like, <laughs> up to that point. I really was. Lots of reasons, you know what I mean? Lots of excuses. But as long as you're making excuses, your life won't change because you're spending all your time on those excuses, no matter how valid they are. Um, and so for me, realizing I could be happy even when homeless was very powerful because it put me, you can't negotiate with a person like that. You know, I was offered a million dollar signing bonus as a homeless kid. And I turned it down, which nobody could believe. Um, and I took the biggest back end anybody had ever been rewarded because I believed that well, that million dollars was a loan. I'd have to sell a ton of records to earn back, right, a million dollars for the label to recoup. The odds of me being dropped from a label were very high. I mean, I was making a folk album at the height of grunge, and even though there was a sitting war, I think that was just labels competing, right? And getting caught up in the competition. Um And so having that type of approach for me was, was really important. And I was happy to walk and, you know, that's always just, that's a powerful place. You know, when you're unwilling to compromise, when you're saying I value my happiness and my, you know, my internal freedom more than I value fame or money, you're going to make better choices. You can't be compromised. And I think it's really served me in my career.
3: Oh, absolutely! I mean, and that's a that's a, a tough lesson to not only learn but also integrate. I mean, here's a here's a question with no easy answer. Do you think that that happiness is, is teachable?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. that was my big mission. Like when I moved out at 15, you know, I knew statistically kids like me end up repeating the cycle, and that just like I had a physical genetic inheritance that might give me a predisposition toward diabetes. I had an emotional inheritance and it was every bit as real and would affect me every bit as much, if not more than my genetic inheritance. But nobody was talking about it. But like I said, I see in pictures. So I saw like this river and it was like, I was standing in this river and my dad and his dad and his dad. And that emotional current, that emotional language that I was raised speaking would lead to a known outcome of abuse of addiction in some various ways, shape, or form. And that was uh, depressing. You know, it's depressing to be 15 and go, oh my God, like the odds of me speaking a new emotional language, the odds of me getting out of this emotional river and into a new one are very stacked against me. And there's no school for it. You know, you could go to school for Spanish, but where was I going to go to learn a new emotional way relating to the world? Very daunting. So, my goal was to see if happiness was a learnable skill. Was it a teachable skill? And that's what set me off on my journey. And that's why I was writing songs like Will Save Your Soul or Hands. Um, a lot of the stuff I wrote was, was me trying to work through this kind of thing. And the answer is yes. Um, the, the slogan on my Jewel Never Broken website is learn to make a habit out of happiness. <laughs> happiness is the side effect of choices. You can't just be happy like it's impossible. It's a side effect of a choice. And your choices are a side effect of your motivations. Your motivations are usually the side effect of unconscious prompts. And so if you can start making the unconscious prompts more conscious, which you use by being consciously present, you start to really change your life. And it takes those behavioral components, um, which again, for some reason, I, I had a knack for creating. And those are on that free website, Jewel Never Broken.
3: There was something you said on the, the podcast Second Life recently, which absolutely floored me. You were discussing sort of the battle between nature versus nurture when shaping a person and their personality. And you said that you worried that your nurture was so intense for you that you wouldn't get to know your own nature. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way to articulate a concern that I think a lot of people have, which is, you know, will I get to know my own soul and not allow my personality to become a series of reactions to what I've experienced in the past? I just thought that was such a beautiful way to put that. And I just wanted to ask you a little more about that and your journey to sort of knowing yourself and your own nature. I just, I thought that was such a a really succinct and beautiful way to articulate this, I think, real primal concern that a lot of people have.
4: Thanks. Um, It's so amazing to me that I just spent my whole life nerding out (laughs) on these really kind of vague, nuanced, strange, philosophical threads and that it's turned into a job. This is just like blowing my mind, you know? <laughs> um, so it's a trip for me to hear you say that. Um, yeah, it's interesting, nature versus nurture. You know, nurture is conditioning. Nature is hopefully our authenticity maybe. Uh, and if my nurture was so bad, was I screwed? You know, would it keep me from knowing my authentic self? Because trauma alters us. It does alter us, right? It, it changes us. And so, how do you handle that? You know, I I had really, really, really bad traumatic experiences over and over, well up into my 30s and 40s. Um, the kind that are just life benders. You know, like what happened to my mom is just a mind bender. How do you recover? Um. Again, because I see in pictures, like I saw an orange, which sounds really silly, but an orange has a peel, and If all you relate to is the peel, you'd have no idea there's this (laughs) juicy, amazing thing inside of it.
3: I love that. And that's how
4: I look at nature versus nurture. You know, our nurture is affecting our peel. I look at our personality as a series of decisions that you make and choices you make to respond to your environment. You know, if you had a really traumatic environment, your personality would form as a suspicious person, as a hypervigilant person. You know, we can start to apply adjectives to somebody based on their nurturing. And that forms your personality, but your personality is fluid. It's not fixed. Um, We can lift that skin, you know, that psychological skin of our conditioning, of our nurture, how we formed our personality over time. And we can start to develop a relationship to what's inside of it. And that again is where mindfulness is really magical. You know, mindfulness should be used to build the muscle of being consciously present. And then once you're consciously present, going down and in. Our whole culture wants us to go up and out. You know, we're hmm. distracted all the time. We're relating to our personality all the time. We think because of we have a feeling, it's gospel. Mm, it's just an extension of our personality in a lot of ways. <laughs> Isn't always authentic. <laughs> you know, it can just be a conditioned emotional response to your nurture. And it gets a little tricky. Where it gets easier is if you just go down and in. Um, you meditate, you learn to go down and in. When you're anxious, you learn to go down and in. You go, learn to get to a steel point in you <clears throat> where you go, How do I feel about that underneath my conditioning? And you start to develop a relationship with a much more authentic part of you. Uh, for me, it's actually why I call the website Never Broken. For me, realizing, wait a minute, you know, what if my anxiety and my trauma and all my reactions and hypervigilance doesn't mean something's wrong with me? What if it means something's right with me? You know, What if every time I'm having a neurotic reaction, it means I shouldn't <laughs> be having that thought or feeling? Can I participate in something that doesn't give me anxiety? Because my own nature shouldn't give me anxiety. And again, that's where our anxiety is like the most powerful ally. If I had a thought that made me anxious, I was willing to say, what if that thought isn't authentically who I am? What if that's a thought I've learned or been conditioned to have? What other thought could I have? What thought takes my anxiety down? Uh, For instance, like the thought, I don't know what I'm doing. You said just unravel me. I don't know why. It would just freak me out. And the truth wasn't, you know, (laughs) the opposite affirmation of I know what I'm doing. That was a lie. I didn't know what I was doing. I was in too many difficult situations. The truth was, I'll figure it out. I don't stop. And I can take that to the bank. And having that thought calmed my nervous system down. So that meant that thought was much more in alignment with my authentic nature than it was in alignment to, you know, my trauma. And so it takes a lot of, you know, conscious presence. It takes a lot of uh, being patient with yourself. Every time you notice yourself, have that thought, replacing it with another thought. But it really works. Um, It really will change your life.
3: What is your relationship like with with music on a daily basis? Is it something that you incorporate? Like some people meditate every day and some people jog every day. Is it something that's that's a daily part of your life?
4: Not really. Um, I sing every day just while I'm walking or doing things. I'm always kind of practicing. I'm in the background. But I don't sit down with my guitar every day. I think becoming a mom definitely impacted how I relate to that. I do write every day. Uh, Poetry for me has been the most consistent thing. And I, I don't think a day goes by very often when I don't write.
3: I, I wanted to end by asking about the title, Wheel and Woman. And I love the word freewheel in it. Just To me, it has all the independence of freedom, but with an added dose of just vivaciousness and boldness and enthusiasm. I just think it's such a great word. I wanted to ask you, what does the title Wheel and Woman mean to you today?
4: I think most of us with time become more afraid of love. Mm. We become... Less potent, maybe. I think a lot of us wonder if our magic has gone, or the best days behind us. I think we feel ground down and weary from life. And I have really fought for my happiness. I have fought for joy. It wasn't, you know, something that came easy to me with my life. And so I wanted this album to be a celebration of that. You know, to be able to say I'm a 47 year old woman in the music business and I'm happier than I've ever been and I'm writing better than I've ever written and I'm singing better than I've ever written. And I feel like my magic is back. And yes, there was a time when I was worried it was gone that life was just beating me down. And I fought for that. Um, and I'm proud, I'm really proud of it. And I wanted this record to be a celebration of a lot of the odds that I feel like I beat that, um, as a woman in the music industry, as a singer-songwriter in the industry, and just as a human, you know, that has to wade through life like everyone else. Um, who we are and who we become with time is <laughs> has to be in, intentional. Um, so I just wanted it to be a, a celebration of it. And too, like I'm, I'm proud to be a woman that's made my own living and my own way in the world with words. I mean, how impossible is that? I never thought that would be the case, Like, I've made a living on words
3: i up, up. Julie you've enriched so many people's lives including my own and so many of my loved ones with your music and everything you've taught and everything you've said today it's been such a joy speaking with you thank you so much for, for sharing thank you so much for your time today and most importantly thank you so much for your music it's been a real honor
4: thanks really enjoyed it
3: we hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio a production of iHeartRadio For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.